All right. Am I on? Yeah, I'm on. Wow. Welcome to Remnant. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. You can feel the presence of God in this room this morning, can't you? Praise God. It's incredible. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we welcome you to this place. You're always with us, but we don't always take time to know that. And I want to make sure you know you're welcome here. God, for all of us, we desire to be so aware and to be so much in your presence to experience the Shekinah or glory of God. God, would you reveal yourself to us as we explore your word? Help me, God, get out of the way so everyone can see you. We celebrate in advance what you're going to do today. Guard us from the sin of not applying what we learn. Hold our hands, God, and walk your children through your holy scriptures. And we ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Can you imagine what would happen if the Shekinah glory of God fell on this stage? Have you ever thought about what that would be like? To be that much in the presence of God, to be worshiping and literally have the Shekinah glory of God fall on the stage. If God revealed himself to us in this room today, I know that we would fall on our faces in sheer terror. None of us would be able to deny the experience. And we'd all be changed because of it. We would never be able to leave here the same again. John, at the top of a mountain, saw Jesus transfigured. And he tried in his book to put it into words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Imagine what it was like for Peter, James, and John to experience the Shekinah, the presence of God on top of that mountain, revealed to them in a supernatural and divine way. Think about those who followed the cloud by day and the fire by night. Those who experienced the presence of God as he descended into the Holy of Holies in the temple. God manifested as a burning bush. The very tangible presence of God, visible in a very real way. For those of us, or for those who lived prior to Jesus, the presence of God was revealed to them like that in supernatural divine ways. It still happens today. Imagine what it must have been like for Jonah when the word of God came to him. We, we don't know how the word of God came to him. Perhaps it was in a dream. Maybe God revealed himself in some way. We don't know, but there was no doubt in Jonah's mind that God had clearly spoken to him. He couldn't pass it off. He couldn't say it was a bad dream or a misunderstanding. Jonah knew that God expected immediate action. Jonah was once again in the very real presence of God. I've been thinking about that a lot over the last few weeks. Imagine if the Shekinah glory of God was manifested on this stage. The presence of God right here. And God spoke to us, and he gave us a direct and clear command. Think about that. The Shekinah glory of God falls on the stage, and out of that, that glory, God speaks. Imagine you experience that 
and then you decided to disobey and flee from the presence of the Lord. How does that happen? I've been trying to think about that for the last few weeks. That Jonah literally was in the presence of God. God told him what to do and he ran away. How do you do that? I know there's times in my life when God has revealed himself clearly to me. Given me directions, wrote them in his book. And I've disobeyed and ran to my Tarshish. You see, usually when God speaks to us, it doesn't make sense. God often asks us to do hard things, some risky things, some things that may seem illogical to us. Th think about it this way. God speaks to us in order to grow us, to take us to places spiritually that we would never take ourselves, to step into a zone of faith we would never step into if we live totally based on logic. Almost every time God tells us to do something, our mind argues with it. In many ways, that's how you know it's from God and not from you. The Spirit is constantly taming the mind. We call it spiritual growth. That's what Jonah discovers. Obeying God has its own risks and threats. Obeying God forces you to face and break through your fears. It takes you out of your comfort zone. It stretches your faith and it transforms you in obedience. Jonah, though, had a dilemma. God is telling him to go to an enemy nation and preach repentance. We, we compared that last week to one of us going to ISIS with a corrective message from God. Obeying God seems at times like us or to us like a death sentence. Many in the will of God, it is. God asks them to obey him even to death. Jonah doesn't know what awaits him in Nineveh, but he probably knows it's not going to be a real warm reception. But Jonah experienced the glory of God. Think about that for a moment. He experienced God's presence in such a powerful way, and God specifically told him. He felt God's power and majesty, God's direction, God's instructions, and he looked straight into the glory of God and said, no, I'm going this way. We learn that his flight was fueled by hatred for the Assyrians. He would rather die than see God save one of them. We learn that we're all Jonah's that we've experienced running from God, and the entire book can be summed up in one sentence. God loves everybody, and we do not. Today we're going to examine another truth about running from God. You see, we think that our flight from the presence of God is a solo journey, that our disobedience is Never ours alone, though. Every time we reject what God wants, there's collateral damage in our life. Disobedience brings consequences that go far beyond just us. We'll see that what we choose to do impacts everybody around us, and particularly those that are closest to us. Our spouse, our kids, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our church family. In addition, we're going to see that in Jonah's story, our running from God hurts people that we haven't even met yet. They get caught up in our disobedience. 
You see, there are few decisions that you and I make that don't impact other people. We're going to see that Jonah's choice to disobey God had a huge impact on what we would call innocent bystanders. Just some folks headed on a boat to Tarshish that day. Today we're going to see the collateral damage of Jonah's flee from God. And in that, we're going to see ourselves. But before we jump into the story again, I want to remind you just real quickly of the historical part of this book. Remember that there is a time when the nation of Israel was divided north and south, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. That happened in about 900 B.C. And then these foreign powers began to interplay and come into the scene. Let's put up the next slide. If you look at this, you'll see that there's this united monarchy under King David. We talked about that last week, roughly about 1000 B.C. Then they split into two nations, north and south. First, the Assyrians come, they take over the north, and then a few years later, they take over the south. And then a few years after that, the Babylonians come in and take over everybody, and after that, the Romans come in and take over everybody. So that's kind of the pattern. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. At the northern border were the Assyrians. He hated the Assyrians, but he was a prophet to the northern kingdom prophesying in 782 to about 750 B.C. Okay, so his job was to do whatever God told him to do, to say whatever he told him to say regarding whatever happens in the North Kingdom, Israel. So that's our time frame. That's what's happening. Okay, so let's go back now and let's just look at the verse we saw last week. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. If you missed last week, please go back and watch last week. We, we went into that verse in detail. Jonah is making a beeline to get as far away from Nineveh as he can possibly go. He's trying to flee from the places, the people, and the presence of God. He wants to wall himself off from God and anyone or anything that reminds him of his disobedience. He just wants to get away. He went down to Joppa. He went down in a boat. Eventually he'll go down in the sea and eventually he'll end up down in the belly of a fish. So just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. It started from a tropic port aboard a tiny ship. I waited all week for that. <laughs> but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you of? 
And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. You see, God brought a storm upon the waters. They didn't name storms back then, but this is Hurricane Jonah. They were seasoned mariners. Has nothing to do with Seattle, nothing to do with salt. They were seasoned mariners. Now it's easy to look back and see them as less intelligent, as not intelligent people, but, but they're not stupid. These are men who could navigate without GPS, didn't have to have any satellite maps, they could read weather patterns. They'd spent their life on this ocean watching the wind and the waves and the skies. They knew cloud patterns, they could read the waters. And here's what they knew. They immediately knew this is like no storm we've ever seen. This is not a storm, just like a storm. This is a storm of evil in the hand of mighty God. I don't know which God they would say, but one of the gods is mad at us. This storm, they said, was evil. The storm was different than the others. The only place a storm like this can come from is from an angry God. They would do two things. This storm was from God, and someone caused this storm to happen. They're beginning to realize that we're all connected to each other. Now, Jonah's in the eye of the storm. The mariners are freaking out. They're throwing things overboard. They're doing everything they can do to save the ship. Crying out to their gods, all hands on deck, and yet Jonah is sleeping. He seems indifferent to his life and the life of those around him. Why? Because he'd rather die. And apparently let other people die than to see one Assyrian be saved by God. But everybody else is up on deck taking a beating, and the captain's not happy about it. And he says, look, if you're not going to do anything at all, at least cry out to your God. Maybe he's not asleep. Notice the captain told him, look at the word, rise. That's the same word the Lord used earlier, rise and go to Nineveh. You see, Jonah, you've been going down. You went down to Joppa. You went down in the boat. You're about to go down into a fish. You need to rise. You need to rise spiritually and do what God has told you to do. Jonah had gone from being a prophet in the presence of the Lord to a man of indifference sleeping in the hull of a sinking ship. Interesting that he probably thought he'd gone as low as he could go. That's where we are when we sin. We think we've hit bottom and we're nowhere near the bottom that God can take us to. When we decide to run from God to Tarshish, there's a bottom we don't know exists. He thinks he's at the bottom. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've tried to help people who have just totally made a mess of their lives, and they said, if only I had recognized this, if only I had stopped sooner. You see, because they always thought they were at the bottom. And then the bottom just kept falling out. So the sailors decided to cast lots Somebody's God is really angry and we need to appease him. It seems from the pronouns that in this text that Jonah was not there when they cast lots. He was down below sleeping. Which could explain the tone that the captain took with him. 
We don't know how they cast lots, but they did. I picture them like Jim Cantore on the boat of this ship with the winds blowing like crazy, and they're trying to cast lots to see who's responsible. Water everywhere. They were desperate. They had to appease the God that caused this storm or they're going to die. They're being pounded by a storm that they had nothing to do with. This was Hurricane Jonah. Everybody knew it. Everybody on the boat knew it. And everyone cared except Jonah. That's the problem with the storms that we cause in life. We think life is all about us, and yet we're all interconnected. They went to Jonah and they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? In other words, Jonah, tell us the truth. We're dying here. Now this is a softball question for Jonah. This should be easy. The truth is always easy. It's the lies that are hard. Great opportunity to tell them about this God that he's made angry. Jonah at this point is busted. Everybody on the boat knows it's him. He knows it's him. He might as well tell the truth, the full truth. He should have said something like this. I am a prophet of the one true God. I'm from Israel and I'm a Hebrew. I'm rebelling from God because of my prejudice and hatred. God is angry at me for having disobeyed him. I'm supposed to be on my way to Nineveh. I thought I was running from the presence of the Lord, but I guess he found me. I'm sorry that my sins have impacted you. I thought I was the only one who would suffer. Please forgive me. Turn the boat around. I need to go to Nineveh and you will be safe. That's what he should have said. The full truth, the whole truth. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Jonah, you left out a few details. What you said was true, but it's nowhere near the whole truth. You see, when we're running from God, we almost never tell the whole truth. Not to ourselves and not to anybody else. Because speaking the whole truth means we have to stop running. I mean, the reality is, if we were running from God, not doing what he wanted, and we actually spoke the truth out loud, even we know we need to stop running and go back to where God says to go. So we never tell the whole truth. We find some partial truth that we can be comfortable with, that we can tell other people that they'll believe on our behalf. We know that if we tell people the whole truth, they'll see the foolishness of what we've been doing. Jonah says that he fears the Lord, but he's not obeying him. He's yet to discover what fear really is. But something powerful is happening here. God is using Jonah's rebellion and sin to tell some mariners about him. What Jonah doesn't realize is that even in his rebellion, he's a witness. He's saying to them, look, I know you have gods of everything. You have God of wind and rain and stars and planets and trees and birds and seas and everything else. But I worship the one true God. Look up, look down, look all around. He created it all. This is the lesson for us as well. Even though we're disobedient, even though we're running from God, God will never waste an opportunity to use our disobedience to bring other people to him. There is collateral damage when we sin, 
But God also can use our demise to reveal himself to other people. There's no way these men on this boat would ever have heard of the God of Israel if they hadn't been stuck in Jonah's storm with him. And they're going to see the power of God work, even though they're innocent bystanders, you see, because the storm's not just for Jonah. The storm's for them, too. Some of the greatest lessons in life come from watching others fail as they disobey God. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Note the response of the mariners. They're extremely afraid now. They thought they were afraid when they were casting lots. Now they realize this storm really is caused by God and it's the God, the big God, and he's mad. Now they are exceedingly afraid. Perhaps now more afraid of the God that's causing this storm than the storm itself. You see, they just thought they'd reached the peak of fear. The creator and sustainer of everything is angry. This is the strongest storm we've ever seen. We just heard of this God, they would say. We didn't know anything about him when we left, Tars- when we left uh, Joppa. We didn't know anything about him. You're just now telling us about him. You obviously can't flee from his presence. You're an idiot. What have you done to make him so angry? Okay, the idiot part's probably implied. But I know they're thinking it. What is it that you've done? Are you crazy to try to run from this God? Even we know you can't flee from this God. We've just heard about him a few minutes ago. We know nothing else and we're ready to obey him. Have you seen the storm? They also don't say it, but part of their question, I think, is this. What have you done to us? They're beginning to realize in a very real way that our rebellion brings collateral damage to a lot of people. Have you been there? Have you ever felt that connection that someone you know is disobeying God and yet you're the one that has the sleepless nights, you're you're the one that's burdened for them, you're the one that's physically hurting for them, while they seem to just be sleeping through their own storm? The husband and father who claims to follow Jesus but runs away with the secretary. The person who traded pursuing God for pursuing their next drink or drug. The person who was to steward God's resources but overspends to the point of poverty. The couple that tells you that divorce is best and the kids will be fine. Someone you know who seems so close to God and is now moving away. And they seem so passive and so unaware. It's almost like they're sleeping through the deception that everybody can see in their life. And you ask him, have you seen the storm that you're causing? Everyone who loves you, including me, is up on deck getting pounded by the storm that you caused, and yet you seem calm, indifferent, and unaware, so we ask what they ask. What is it that you've done? Don't you realize that we're all connected? That your flee to Tarshish hurts every one of us? I love you, but are you crazy? Do you really want to run from God? I've seen this play out so many times. One of the roles of elders is to confront and love those who are running from the presence of God. The problem is that even though love is the only reason you would ever confront them, 
honestly, it's so much easier just to let them go. But they never see the love in the question. You inquire into their storm and it's almost never received well. It's in this moment that you discover what category of storm you're really dealing with. You find out how strong the rebellion really is. So many times they're in such denial that they can't even see the storm. Or the collateral damage their storm is causing to people they love. They, they give you this sort of common blank stare that comes from denial. Pastors all over speak of being bewildered by this uncaring and obvious response that we all receive during these conversations. It's almost hard to believe. Their family, their friends, everybody they know is going crazy and they don't know what the problem is. Too many times I've had to tell somebody the path you're on leads to a destination. The path that you're on leads to a lot of damage. There's going to be broken relationships, damaged trust, lost opportunities. Your decisions are going to impact your spouse and your children for perhaps generations. It will impact the trust they have in you. It will impact the trust they have in God. Their ability to trust their future spouse, their, the way their parent, their grandchildren. Our storms have generational impact. But they just look at you with this blank stare and remove you or anybody else that confronts them in their circle of influence. Like Jonah, they tell partial truths even as their rebellion is hurting everybody in their life. You know, there are parallels between the storms that are caused by our sin and the hurricanes that we track in the Gulf. The first hurricane I can remember was Hurricane Camille in 1969. I remember it because my sister's named Camille, and I'd been living through Tropical Storm Camille for eight years. <laughs> She's an amazing woman now, but in 1969 she was my annoying older sister. Hurricane Camille was a Cat 5 storm at landfall. Landed in Mississippi, wind speeds 190 miles an hour. It wiped out all the weather stations, so they really couldn't track the numbers. Nine billion in damage, 250 people died. But the eye of that storm was 40 miles wide. So I began wondering, if you stay in the center of the eye of a storm, would you even know that the storm is surrounding you? You could see sleep peacefully in the eye of a storm. Blue skies, calm waters, low winds, starry nights. The view from the eye of the storm is always good. If you could stay in the center of that eye and move with the storm, you could actually deny that the storm is even, it even exists. You see, your perspective on the storm depends on your viewpoint. Calm in the eye raging next to the walls. You see, our storms start when we choose to run from God, when we flee towards Tarshish. We're all Jonas. We all run from God. We all create our own storms. We do our own damage to those around us, but we don't care because Tarshish looks so much better than what God's telling us to do. There's not a single person that you've ever met who doesn't have a storm named after him. Over the years, there have been many, several Hurricane Franks manifested by gale force arrogance, storm surges of anger, tornadoes of pride, and lightning bolts of a demeaning tongue. 
I've left people in my wake damaged emotionally, and poor Tammy was there just like FEMA to try to pick up from the damage that I've done and help the people that I've hurt. We've all been at the eye of our own storms. Storms that we have created in our rebellion against God. We're peaceful, and everybody around us keeps telling us that we're crazy because the storm is raging. It always starts the same. The water around us begins to stir. The turbulence starts to increase. It's disorganized, and it's fragmented at first. The people around us know something's changed, but... They're not real sure. They just know something's not right with us. They can feel things starting to change. It's not like it was before. Those closest begin to feel it first. The disobedience is not enough to clearly identify, but the symptoms are starting to show. People closest begin to start feeling the wind pick up. They come to us and they share their concerns, but we're already ready for them. No, everything's fine. Praise God. All's good. It's all good, really. No, it's all good. Yeah, everything's great. Thanks for asking. It's great. Really great. Like Jonah, we give them half-truths. We think we've convinced them, but those that know us well, they know better. We see it in their eyes. Their eyes tell us, please leave me alone. So we begin to withdraw. But the turbulence increases. The storm becomes evidence to all those around. And even everybody else now begins to notice this sort of tropical depression is now becoming something we need to pay attention to. This tropical storm of our disobedience is now being tracked by other people. You can't really hide it anymore, you can't ignore it, so you start trying to explain it away. It's escalating to the point that it's becoming a very strong tropical storm in your life. You begin to realize that things aren't going well, so you start pushing everybody away. You push those away who challenge you. You push those away who love you. You push those away that God put in your life to speak truth to you. And instead you get angry and resentful and you don't want to hear the truth. So you just keep pushing everybody away from you who will speak truth. And you create a zone where the things of God no longer matter. You see, you wall off anyone who comes in the name of the Lord. Storms start to centralize around a central focus. People start pressing in on us, we start pushing back on them. The more they challenge us, the stronger our wall becomes. We push back and we create our own zone of peace where the topic doesn't come up. We begin to isolate ourselves from all things God. We deflect attention, sending out relational tornadoes through other people. Storms start to organize. Somehow we think that if we can get people to agree with us, that we can just help us justify that the storm is everybody else's problem, that they've overreacted, that they're the ones with the problem. So we start to encircle ourselves in the eye of the storm. Which eye? Well, since those of us who are closest see what's wrong, we begin to seek safer waters. I can't stay around the same people. They're they're telling me that I'm sinning. They're telling me that I need to turn back to God. So so we have to find safer waters. We we have to find other churches. We've got to find new friends. We've got to... Surprisingly, our old enemies now want to be our friends. That's kind of weird. But we tell them only part of the story, and we leave out the real reason that we're not in Nineveh. We gossip, we lie, we deceive, just like Jonah. 
It's easy because we've already rationalized and deceived ourselves. That's what created the zone in the first place. Filled with half-truths and part of the story, they spin out these tornadoes, doing their own damage within the marriage and the family and the work situation and the body of Christ. People on their behalf going out with half-truths, causing damage before the real storm comes. And as we begin to push away the people that are closest to us, we create the eye of our storm where we can stay in calm waters, where we can move with the storm and not have to experience the damage that we're causing in our disobedience. We've created a relational space where nobody wants to be near us, and those that do come near us, they, they have to walk on eggshells because we're volatile at the center of our storm. And yet, we develop our eye. From our perspective, everything's calm. Since God no longer comes up, since the people of God have learned to avoid the obvious topic, people know us and who challenge us have been pushed away. Ironically, we find peace in our storm. Nobody's bringing it up again. These are nice waters. We can't figure out why everybody else is so upset. The storm's their problem. We're good. You see, we can sleep when on deck everybody's being pounded. And since the storm always moves where we move, it's always calm for us. In fact, you can stay in the eye of the storm. It'll go wherever you go. You may not even know there's a storm. You eventually forget there's a storm around you. It may last for your whole life. People have been avoiding you. People have been damaged by your anger, by your hostility, whatever it is. And you've just been going through life and you're not aware of why everybody's giving you that look. You become unaware and unaffected by the damage. And like Jonah, you become unconcerned about the people that are taking the trip with you. Those who wouldn't even be in the storm if they didn't know you. And you don't care about them at all. You see, one thing we have to remember is that storms always avoid high pressure zones. Always. You want to know where a storm's going? Look for low pressure. What are high pressure zones? Our quiet time with God our small group, our church, our time abiding with Jesus, our old friends who know us well enough to love us enough to speak truth, our accountability partners. We seek the warm waters of new relationships. People who believe our half-truths and don't care that we're running from God. What we have to avoid at all costs if we want to keep our storm going is the cold waters of those who know us and are trying to speak truth to us. You see, warm waters feel good. We can relax in the warmth of new friends who no longer hassle us about our sins or try to hold us accountable like we asked them to. We find people who will agree with us. Well, at least they'll agree with the partial truth that we've told them. But, but here's the problem. Storms always intensify in warm waters. Once we get away from the things of God, once our eye is well established and our walls are high, the pressure in our life starts to drop. People are no longer challenging us. People are afraid to come near us. When the pressure in a storm at the eye starts to drop, the storm gets more powerful. And that's what happens in our life as well. We think things are calm. The longer the storm goes on, the more intense it's becoming. 
It's easy for everyone to track our storm. The path that we're on is leading to a destination. Every hurricane is destroyed when it collides with land. Eventually, no matter how strong the storm, it crashes and destroys almost everything and everyone in its past, and it even destroys the storm itself. Everyone close to us knows that we're going to crash. You're literally spinning out of control. That's what storms do. Those who love you try to check on you, but you won't let them. They risk the dangerous reconnaissance flight into the eye of your storm, trying to see how you really are, trying to see how I really am in the middle of my storm. People that are willing to risk their lives to fly in and find out how we're doing. People who love us enough to try to penetrate the massive eye wall that we've built over time. People who are willing to risk a relationship to help stop the storm. Willing to take the verbal assaults and willing to break through all of our defenses just to check on us, to try to save us, and to try to deliver God's truth into the eye of our storm. And as the storm approaches, warnings go out. At this point, even those closest to us and those who truly love us have to evacuate. At some point, we have to protect ourselves from those we love from the impact. Storm surge increases and intensifies right before impact. Everyone can see that the storm's going to crash. They know the damage is going to happen. They hunker down for the impact, trying to hold on to the things most precious to them, praying that God will protect them from the damage of your sins and my sins. It's not until the storm crashes that the eye of the storm is disrupted. All of a sudden, your peaceful calm in the eye of your storm is suddenly not there anymore, and you're in the middle of a hurricane. And you see the damage that you've done. You see, you were in the eye of your storm, but your eye broke up, and now there's a hurricane going on, and there's damage everywhere, and everybody looks and says, how did this happen? Where did this come from? It, it amazes me that in that moment, your denial comes face to face with the truth of your situation. You're finally experiencing what everybody around you has been battling for a long time. They're hunkered down hoping Hurricane U passes by. It amazes me that those who crash seem surprised when it happens. They've been in so much denial. They never saw what everybody else saw that was inevitable. It was going to happen. And by the time they recognize that the damage is done, the marriage is in shambles, their children and friends have been hurt. They burned their trust with almost everyone. Most have been forced to evacuate. Most had to move to higher spiritual ground. And as you survey the damage of the rebellion caused when broken relationships, damaged trust, and painful memories are scattered across the landscape of your life, reality drives you to do what Jonah does. Eventually, you'll cry out to God to be saved. And sadly, sometimes it's this kind of damage in your life that it takes to finally get you to wake up out of your delusion and go back and follow God the way he asked you to in the first place. So what do you do? What do you do when the storm is raging? When you're on the deck of a ship and you're getting pounded by a storm caused by somebody you love, what do you do? You're trying to hold on to your marriage, your children, the remnants of your friendship. You're trying not to drown in the storm. And the one who caused the storm is sleeping comfortably, living in denial and spinning off half-truths. But you know a crash is coming. And you love them too much to just walk away. 
How do you stop a hurricane? Well, we've already mentioned the most common way it crashes into land, self-destructs and destroys everybody. But there's another way hurricanes are tamed. It's rare, but it involves a way that you can penetrate the wall, the eye wall of the hurricane. And you can destroy the power of the storm. Two things are necessary. The storm must move into cold water and the eye has to experience what's called upper level shear forces. This is what happens as we try to get through the resistance of someone's eye wall. The bigger the eye wall, the more painful the damage. They resist our efforts, they lash out at our character, they misrepresent our motives, and anything they can do to keep us from understanding the truth about the walls that they've built. I know because I've done it. But families are being destroyed, relationships are being broken, tornadoes of partial truth are spinning out of control. And those who care about them, we've got to fight to get through to them. You can't just leave them there, even if it means loving them enough to drive them away. You have to do something. That's what love is. Love is an action. So how do we love someone through their storm? How do we get through to them? How do we wake them up from the slumber in the eye of their storm before they crash into land? I'm going to give you seven things in order. First, Focus on the most important relationship, the relationship with God. Speak only to them God's truth from Scripture, not your opinion. You see, God's truth has power. Your opinion does not. Your opinion's never going to break through an eye wall. God's truth can. If the Holy Spirit's going to convict them, it'll be through God's Word. Go to them early with God's word. Decide to deal with the storm in the gulf before it hits land, before it intensifies. The earlier you can bring God's word into a developing storm, the better chance you have of stopping the damage that happens later. Stand firm in your love for them. They're going to want to seek the warm waters of people who agree with them, and you must bring the cold reality of God's truth to them while they still may care. Second, surround the person with believers who are relentless and unwavering with the truth of God. Because once you bring the truth to them, they're going to try to find somebody else that won't bring the truth to them. Refuse to be pushed aside, risk everything to save them, risk your relationship with them, weather the storm that is their anger, fury, and resistance, risk the lies they spread about you, be willing to risk your reputation, stand firm in your love for them, even if they're firm in their hate for you. Remember, they are headed to a destination they can't see. You see, God's people need to stay in the storm. They need to bring high pressure and cool waters of truth. We need to be relentless even if they hate us for it. They're not going to receive the word of God well. Nobody running from God wants to receive the word of God. They don't want to hear its truth. Third, rally the troops. Relentlessly pursue those you love in groups. 
risk losing them from your church, your life, your family, your workplace, because if they hit land, they're going to ask you why you didn't do something sooner if you saw it coming. Deal with it in the Gulf long before that storm starts to build. Because after that eye is established, they will no longer see the storm anymore. Fourth, pray that God will penetrate the eye of the storm. For a storm to dissipate without hitting land, it has to be destroyed by God. The eye of the storm must encounter upper level shear forces. The strongest upper level shear force that can impact your relational tornado and hurricane is the Holy Spirit of God. It's the highest shear force on the planet. It penetrates the heart. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone brings truth and conviction and finally can penetrate the heart of a storm. Some storms can only be penetrated by God himself. Fifth thing, evacuate as the storm approaches. At some point, you're going to have to hunker down and step back and let God do what he's doing. If they fail to listen while the storm is churning in the gulf, you've got to leave them to their destruction as they approach land. Don't interfere with what God's doing in their lives. Let them go. You've done everything you can do. They're going to have to experience. Some people just have to crash before they stop. However, it's not that you do nothing. Getting away, hunkering down, protecting yourself, protecting others from the storm, and then you focus on the next step. Number six, pray incessantly. We must trust God with the outcome of people's storms. You see, they're in rebellion against God, not us. God's the one bringing them back. God's the one convicting them. God's the one that's going to cause and allow things to happen to get their attention. What they're doing is not against us, it's against God. Pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to exert sheer forces in the wall of resistance that they built up. We need to pray that God will disrupt the eye of denial with a storm. That Jesus will penetrate their rebellious hearts with love and conviction. As the storm approaches land, we all have to just go to our knees. And then the last thing, be ready to become part of the rescue team. After the storm hits, the first thing that's going to happen is their warm water friends are going to abandon them. They'll need you. They'll need you to bring forgiveness. They'll need you to bring love. They'll need you to bring mercy. They'll need you to bring hope. They'll need you to be Jesus for them because they're going to be shattered. Pray that God will use you to love and help restore them. And when they drive you away, let them know you'll be available when the crash happens. Now, there's one other thing I just want to bring up something we need to remember. Those who know Christ, who have the Holy Spirit in them, you know deep down you can't run forever. God's not going to let you. Rebellion might feel good at the beginning, but even though Jonah was running from God in disobedience, he likely knew he would eventually have to go to Nineveh. Deep down, every true believer knows if there's a Holy Spirit in them, they're going to eventually do what God wants them to do.
And this is something that's critical to think about. You may be able to disobey God, but the Holy Spirit in you cannot. Let me repeat that. You may be able to disobey God, but the Holy Spirit in you cannot. If you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, and the Holy Spirit of God is active and alive in you, you will eventually submit to the Holy Spirit who always submits to the desires of God. If you're a believer in Christ, you cannot run. It's futile. It's a waste of time. Spiritual growth is figuring that out. Spiritual growth is wrestling with God and learning to surrender finally. Spiritual maturity is realizing over time that it's easier just to not wrestle with God and do what he says. So in closing, I want to ask you a question. Who do you know that's in a storm? As I've been talking, who's been coming to your mind? Maybe it's a hurricane from the storms of your past, perhaps a storm of your previous marriage or the storm of your addiction or perhaps living in the eye wall of somebody else's storm or maybe it's a storm of uncontrolled anger that you had to either cause or survive. But for many, hurricane warnings are up right now. You haven't been thinking of something that happened a long time ago. You're, you're living it right now. Is it you? Is this sermon what God's going to use to keep you from destroying everything and everyone that you value? Are you in the eye wall of your anger? The eye wall of your alcoholism? The eye wall of your extramarital sins? Has he in some way penetrated your denial today? Has God broken through your eye wall and revealed to you the damage swirling around you? Have you finally started to think about and see why people around you have that scared and concerned look that you think is judgment, but actually it's love? Do you need to stop running from God today and go towards Nineveh? Finally do what he's asked you to do? Maybe God's using this message to get you to surrender your arrogance and your pride and let the Holy Spirit and God complete in you what he promised to complete. To finally let those upper level Holy Spirit sheer forces stop the storm that has been you. Maybe storm warnings are up in your life because of someone you love. Maybe it's someone that you've essentially almost given up on. A friend or a family member whose storm has been smoldering so long that you've just about given up. Damage is being done. You know God hasn't given up on them, but truthfully you realize you probably have. Rededicate yourself to praying for them without ceasing. You should never stay in a storm if you're being physically abused or emotionally bullied. Not every storm is yours to face. Sometimes you have to evacuate to protect yourself and to protect the people you love. But there is power in prayer. There are some storms that you just have to step back and hand over to God. Maybe you see the stirrings of a tropical depression in someone's life right now. Maybe it's not fully developed, but it's imminent. They're spinning out in the Gulf. Each moment they seem to be building up 
power. They're starting to build their eye wall. They're pushing away a few people. They're stiff-arming those who come asking if they're okay, including you. Maybe God's calling you to be a storm chaser. If so, would you commit today to be relentless in your pursuit of them? To pray for them constantly, to make sure that, yeah, they're in tropical storm forces right now, and the eye of the storm is starting to organize moment by moment. That storm is intensifying. As their eye wall closes, so does the opportunity to reach them. We've got to reach them when they're out in the Gulf, when they're just starting to stir. Because once the eye wall closes, they're closed to you as well. And they will calmly sleep in the eye of their storm. You see, we're all Jonas. We all at times run from God. Our rebellion always produces collateral damage, particularly to those closest to our hearts. Sometimes the storm is a cat five and it's just not safe for you to be in relationship with that person at the center. There are times when you pray and God tells you that you have to evacuate and leave the storm to him. In those cases, get out. Find a safe port, protect yourself, and pray that God will work at transforming the evil that's in their heart that's driving their storm. You see, Jonah ran from God. He thought his decision would impact only him. He'd rather die than preach to the Assyrians. He chose to rebel against God, but his decision had ramifications far beyond him. Hurricane Jonah was spinning out of control, and everybody, it seems, was in the path. We've all had our own storms. We've all slept in the eye of the storm that we caused, and in the process, those closest to us, and even those we did not know, suffered. One day, 700 years after Jonah's storm, another man stood up on a boat in the middle of the storm. Raging seas, scared people. We're going to die, call out to God. And that man stood up and said, quiet, be still. And at Jesus' command, the storm listened to its creator. When you and I are stirring up waters of rebellion, we must, as followers of Jesus, listen to him when he says to us, quiet, be still. Be still and know that I'm God. Stop the storm that you're about to spin out of control in. Let's pray. God, we are indeed a fallen people. We want to be so much better than we are, but we're broken. All of us, at times, are going to rebel from what you've told us to do. It's just the way it is. Spiritual maturity is learning to say yes sooner, but God, none of us are that mature. We all have a desire to think we can get away with running from you, and truthfully, if the Holy Spirit's not in us, we probably can but when we run from you, we take the Holy Spirit with us. And he's always going to bring us back. You can't run from God with the Holy Spirit in you. You can't split the Trinity. So the sooner we realize that, God, the sooner the storms in our lives 
become like afternoon showers instead of months and years long hurricanes. God, help us the wisdom to know how to help people who can't see through the eye of their storm. Help us to pray for those who are running from you. Help us to bring your truth when the opportunity arises. Help us to risk the relationship, our reputation, and everything else about us to protect them from themselves. In your name. And we ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.